ago, it said attacking scuba divers thinking they're mates. Um, and all I could think in my head was, I'm clearly, I misread that headline. And then I went on to read this article about these venomous sea snakes who just happened to kind of be in a season of life where they're looking for love. And they were mistakenly confusing the scuba divers swimming in the waters where they, you know, like, I guess snakes go clubbing too, right? And so they're in their lane and they're like life and they're looking for love. And here comes these very large, um, very funny looking sea snakes. So they start doing these mating rituals that completely terrify the scuba divers. And all I could think in my head, because I think in memes, was like, oh, it's fine. You know, it's, it's okay. I'm, you know, I'm just not going to move. It's like if you've ever had a bee start to swarm you, um, I am definitely allergic to bees. I have to have an EpiPen, and I'm an idiot, and I never carry my EpiPen. And so when a bee starts swarming around me, this is what's happening on the inside of me. Like, I'm like, oh, great, death all around me right now. I'm just not going to freak out. I'm not going to squat. I'm not going to scream. I'm not going to yell. I'm not going to push anyone down. Uh, I'd, on our honeymoon, I pushed my wife into the bushes um, to get away from a bee. And ever since then, I realized that perhaps that was not the best way of love. And so ever since then, this has been me every time I'm around a bee. And I imagine when they experience those frisky sea snakes looking for love. Best headline ever, by the way. So, um, <laughs> but in many ways, all of those headlines capture kind of what it's like right now for you and for me in this weird season that we find ourselves in. That I thought September, October 2021, life after COVID would sweep in and we would be back to normal and have normal things happening to us regularly. And then summer happened and it wasn't that. It became life with COVID where everything is kind of teetering on the edge and you're not really sure. Some things are semi-normal. Some things are completely abnormal. Some of us thought we would be in office spaces with people and coffee and boring things called meetings. And now those things are still via Zoom. And we're being reminded how much we still hate Zoom after 18 months of it, right? And in some ways, I feel like this is life, right? I mean, this is an actual picture. This is not Photoshop. This is a guy who was cutting his grass in Canada, and he was completely unaware because he was under the fence line that there was a large kind of tornado looming in the distance headed straight for him. No clue until the person who took the picture told him. Now, my personal problem with this is like, wait a second, you took a picture before you told me a tornado was headed towards us? Like, the first call could have been like, hey, bro, just wanted you to know there is a large tornado. And if I had said, hey, you know what, this is an epic picture. I'm going to pretend to push the lawnmower. Like, that would have been the okay way to go. But not catch the picture and then tell, hey, he died right after this, by the way. I don't know if, you, if I told you that part. No, I'm joking. But, like, that could have happened. Right? I mean, this is real life. And this is how I feel every time I turn on the news. It's like, what else is about to happen? Like, I just expect tomorrow California is going to, like, just turns out it's not really a state. It's a shelf, and it's just going to snap and just fall into the water or something ridiculous. I mean, we've had in this region two hurricanes in the last 10 days. Like, what in the world? I mean, which it doesn't surprise me. One of the things as a pastor, people ask me, like, is this the end of the world? And I'm like, no, I think it's worse. 
But I see why you think that, right? <laughs> like, because that's actually a, a question I get asked. Is this like in Revelation? I'm like, no, this just stinks. But it's not in Revelation. Revelation's far scarier than this. Um, and this is not the four horsemen of the apocalypse. This is just a really good picture of a tornado and a dude with a lawnmower, right? But this is in some ways life. And last week we started this series. Um, I just wanted to give you one more perspective because I really want you to know it wasn't Photoshop. And this is my bucket list picture to have one day me taken with a tornado like that. Anyways, this is all to set us up for this two-week series we've been having a conversation around about being in the unknown. Because that's where life is right now. And if you think back to March 2020, we were in the unknown. And the unknown kept dragging along. And then we all started kind of collectively breathing a sigh a little bit last early, kind of early spring when vaccines started to roll out and experts that sounded doomsday started to be like, by this fall, we'll see things returning to normal. And then things started becoming a dumpster fire. And I have a theory that's probably true of you just as much as true of me. It is harder for me to hold on now than it was last year. It was easier to be more resilient. It was easier to be more upbeat and hopeful. But like COVID-19 feels like it's going to become COVID-23 and 24. And it's just like, is this thing ever going to happen? Is my kid ever going to not have to look like Bane when she goes into school? Like, I mean, when does this thing hit reset? And we can get set into a normal course of life. Like, I miss fun things like laughing and eating with people and not having to like form some type of like mutual kind of agreement like hey I want to shake your hand is it appropriate to shake your hand can I hug what about hugging how about fist bumping elbow bumping like you know like every person you meet that you're meeting for the first time you're trying to figure out where they stand and simultaneously you're like checking and watching and I don't know about you but like when somebody coughs in the room, I, I respond like some person that has had gunfire shot over their back. Like, I want to dive on the ground and cover my mouth. Like, I'm like, what is wrong with me? And this is the unknown, abnormal that we live in. So what do we do? Last week, I left you with this idea of what does it look like to walk through life with COVID, not just life after COVID. And that one of the things that is incredibly encouraging and hopeful for us, especially for us who have the Christian faith, is that we may be in the unknown, but we have a God who can be known and who can sustain us through the unknown. And that's a really good thought. It's a paradigm-shifting thought that's super helpful, but I want to get a little bit more practical because I recognize even if maybe you're here today or join us online that maybe this whole idea of a faith thing is still new to you, so the idea of trusting God is like, okay, well, that doesn't really help me because I'm not even sure if there is a God. So what do I do practically in this unknown? And today I want to kind of take you to a passage in a book that probably most of us have never read before that's found in the Bible. It is going to be the section of the book, like I did last week, where I want to tease out the most famous portion of this book that no one's read. Um, arguably, it's written by one of the most depressing writers in the entire Bible. I mean, literally, the, this guy wrote two books. And they were written through the darkest periods of Israel's history. And if you understand some of the symbolic language and some of the poetic language he employs through the passages that he writes in these two books, it's just 
depressing. One of the nicknames that this guy had was like the ancient equivalent of crybaby because he just cried all the time because things were just that bad. And people would call him the weeping prophet. That was one of the, the things that he was known by in the ancient world. Is a guy named Jeremiah. And Jeremiah had the unfortunate privilege of being born in the worst possible time to be born a Jew outside of the Holocaust. And, and he has the added weight of having to capture, record, and kind of really document everything that he's seeing. It's a really heavy, dark place. And it's out of that experience that he writes two different books. One of them is named after him, and we call it the book of Jeremiah. Um, Jeremiah had a very deep heart. He loved deeply. He cared deeply. And he was trying to say things that nobody wanted to listen to. And so we jump into Jeremiah chapter 29, which is a portion of the book where he is recording a letter to send to a group of people. And it's just a portion of that letter I want to read. Now, if you're new to the Bible or maybe you don't have a Bible, one of the things that we've done at Encounter Church is we've created an app for you. Uh, you can download it for free at EncounterChurch.com forward slash app. Um, we do not track you in our app. We do not pay attention. We're not selling your information. I don't care if you're a Popeye's chicken person or if that's where you go or if you're a Target person or a Walmart person. Our app does not care. Our app is there for you to help you grow and engage spiritually because I believe there's more to life than what you and I have, and this app is our way of helping you put that in your hands, and we don't have any kind of idea that we're going to make money off this thing or sell information. So um, just know that that app is there for you, and I've already preloaded the passage for today. And if not, I'll have it right here on the screen. Jeremiah 29, verse 1, it says, This is the text of the letter that the prophet Jeremiah sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders among the exiles and to the priests, the prophets, and all the other people Nebuchadnezzar had carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Now, I recognize about 65% of the words on that screen are not words you have read, thought about, or said any time this year or last year or the year before that, right? The last time you said the word Nebuchadnezzar, was probably never, or maybe in seventh grade when you had to write it on a test in world history. So let me give you a little bit of a backdrop of what's playing out because this, this thing is fully loaded, right? So it goes on and says, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all of those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. So here's the back history of what we're about to jump into. Okay, so roughly uh, 600 uh, almost 2,600 years ago, about 600 years before Jesus is born, the nation of Israel um, has fractured over the course of 200 years prior. Um, the first half of that nation, it, they essentially go through what would akin to the Civil War, and they completely split. You've got northern Israel and you've got Judea, so you've got these two separate nations. One of the nations falls around 722 B.C. The other one fall, falls around 586 B.C., um, both of these two groups fall to different conquerors, but have some of the same experiences. Then this is one of the groups that fall, and the enemy they fall to is not the Assyrians like the other group did. This falls to a group of ancient um, people known as the Babylonians. Now, you and I have not used the word Babylon in a long time. It is not a word that's on most of our minds, but in ancient history, they were a powerhouse. 
One of their most famous kings was a guy named Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar was a dominant military force. He is one of those military commanders that should be respected if you've ever studied war, um, that's on the kind of Genghis Khan, uh, someone like a Napoleon. Nebuchadnezzar was one of those type of figures. He was conquering the world before the world was even a thing. And so Nebuchadnezzar is marching through, defeating all of these countries and nations, and he gets to Israel, and he completely obliterates them. I mean, completely obliterates them. Forms a circle around the city, which with a really high wall, they siege the city, which means they cut off so nothing can come in and nothing can come out. You cannot get an Instacart order. The Amazon driver, the FedEx, the UPS guy is not getting through a siege wall. They shut it down, and everything that that city has is inside the city, which means your sewage that was normally kind of taken out of the city is not being taken out of the city. The water that you needed that you normally got from wells and rivers around the city, it's not coming in because you can't get out to get it. The food from the food merchants who were growing crops, livestock and bringing them into the city every day, the trade and the open markets, they're not coming in. And what happens is the city slowly starves to death, they thirst to death, and they drown in their own sewage. Like, no matter how bad it feels like right now with COVID, it is still not that bad. And eventually the way a siege worked in the ancient world was it would get so bad inside of the city you sieged, eventually the people would decide it's better to be conquered and alive than to be free and dead. They would catapult bodies in. I mean, it was a brutal thing. And Nebuchadnezzar, they would attack the walls, and eventually they got in. But it got so dark, and this is really graphic, all right? So plug your ears if you don't like graphic stuff. But it gets so dark that Jeremiah writes about, um, in the book of what's called Lamentations, writes about how cannibalism becomes common in the city. I mean, that's how heavy and dark it gets, right? And so Nebuchadnezzar finally breaks through, and he takes everyone in the city that can walk, and he shackles them, and he forces them to walk from Jerusalem to Babylon, which if you Google map that right now, in the ancient world, it was a 550-mile journey, and there was no cars, bus, or mass transit. You had your left foot and your right foot, and it would take about three weeks of walking to do that. Now, if I dropped you off in the middle of nowhere after you were forced to go like a, like a week of walking into the woods, would you make it? Like, I'm pretty sure I would not. I mean, I get lost pretty easily already. And, but if I was ever forced to walk a, a, for a solid week into anything, you might as well go ahead and plan my funeral because I'm not coming back. It's just going to be bad. These people walked for three weeks to a place they had never been. You have to realize, in the ancient world, this is a Jeopardy fact, by the way. This will be really helpful one day, I promise, some, someday maybe. Um, the average person born in the ancient world never traveled more than 110 miles their entire life. Okay? So what you and I could do this afternoon would travel more difference, more distance than 
anyone in the ancient world ever traveled their entire lifetime. Jesus, okay, who's kind of a big deal to us. It's estimated Jesus only traveled about 100 miles from where he was born in his entire life. These people are being dragged five times that distance. We take for granted hopping on an airplane and flying thousands of miles, but in this day, in this world, 550 miles means you're in a place where the sky looks different, where no one speaks your language, where the smells smell different. They're dragged into a country, they're defeated, they're conquered, they arrive into Babylon. It's a massive, huge metropolis. They look around and all of a sudden they realize two things. There is a 100% homeless rate and there is a 100% unemployment rate. It is really dark and it's really heavy. And they get this letter that would have taken weeks to travel. And it's from Jeremiah, who they believe when he spoke, he could tell them what God was thinking. And I, I give you way, way, way too much information because I wanted you to feel the weight of that semicolon. If that was you, if that was you where you are, you are living in the unknown and you desperately want to know what God is about to say through Jeremiah to you. And I mean, I mean, it is like, all right, read the rest of the letter. And this is what the rest of the letter says. Build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there. Do not decrease. I mean, that's heavy. I don't know if you count the generations in that. Get married, have kids, get your kids married so that they can have kids. Build houses, plant gardens. This is not an overnight trip, God is saying to them. This is, this is going to last for a while. You're going to be here for a while. It's like that trip where you, you're not living out your suitcase. You're unpacking it and you're putting it and the furniture, because you're going to be there a while. This is about 70 years of time that God is telling them that they're going to be stuck in the city. And then he goes on, and he says, yes, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. He's like, yes, I, let me repeat myself. Yes, did you just hear me say 70 years? Yes. He says, but do not let the prophets and diviners among you deceive you. Do not listen to the dreams you encourage them to have. They are prophesying lies to you in my name. I have not sent them, declares the Lord. Um, in 1989, a study was published out of Hawaii by a researcher. She had tracked over 600, almost 700 kids for 30 years. Two-thirds of those kids had been born into stable house homes, um, but a little over 200 of them had been born in what would have been kind of technically labeled troubled or kind of disturbing backgrounds and backdrops and had had horrible things happen to them. And when she was collecting this mountain of data of almost 700 people for 30 plus years, she noticed something about a subset of the two-thirds, not the two-thirds, but the one-third who had come out of really hard backgrounds. Two-thirds of those one-third that had come out of the hard background they ended up 
traveling down similar paths of whatever it came out of. Prison time, addictions, um, pregnancies, like just kind of list the things. There's all these different challenges they're working through. But then there was in this list of data, there was this one group that was unique. In fact, if you're a researcher, it was two standard deviations different than the rest of the group. Significant difference. And so she started to clue in on and ask questions about what makes this unique group of people over here, this 70 people, different than all the rest after they've gone through the hard time. And what she settled on was a phrase and a concept that I think is a really important concept for those who find themselves in the unknown. And the genius of God is, is actually it, what that researcher discovers in 1989 is present in this passage almost 2,600 years ago. So what's the researcher find? She notices that there's one difference between the two groups that came out of really hard backdrops. It's that they seem to have a different, what was technically termed, locus of control. That's not a phrase, again, because today is all about phrases you're not using regularly, so let me give you another one. A locus of control is is this idea of where does the power in your life reside? The power to change things, the power to control things. Is the controlling force in your life external or is the controlling force in your life internal? One's called an internal locus of control, one's called an external locus of control. And it's really critical, and what she finds is it's that this unique group of kids who are now adults, who've overcome all of these challenging overwhelming odds and obstacles had what she labeled as an internal locus of control. They believed no matter what circumstance they stepped into that they still had the control and ability to do something. And it's actually in this passage, it's present, both of them. This is the genius of God in this letter. He says to the group in the second section of the letter, he says, do not listen to the dreams you encourage them to have. He's warning them hey, everything feels out of control right now. Everything feels overwhelming and and just completely crushing to you. It's hopeless, and you feel helpless about your circumstances. And so you're going to be tempted to grab on to something that's going to make you feel better. But I want you to beware of these prophets and diviners who try to deceive you. I want you to be cognizant of the fact that there are going to be conspiracy theories floating around in the midst of this unknown, this uncontained, overwhelming circumstance you find yourself. There are going to be people who are trying to kind of tell you and explain to you what's really going on and how it's about to change overnight and how things are going to magically just transform. You need to be cognizant of the fact that there are going to be people kind of floating things around like This is 2,600 years ago, and if you get on YouTube today in the middle of this pandemic, it is exactly what you see in this passage. Conspiracy theories, alternate explanations of, you know, this evil group of people trying to control the world who are orchestrating this pandemic, which to me is like, these are the most incompetent world conquerors ever. And it's totally backfired on them. 
because everybody knows that's what they're up to, right? But like there's just conspiracy theories floating around and people trying to grab hold of anything that they feel like gives them control and explanation of the world. The reason conspiracy, conspiracy theories have power is because they offer you an explanation when you look around your world that doesn't seem to have one. And he's saying, I want you to beware. When you're in the middle of the unknown, do not allow your hope and your beliefs to fall into this external locus of control. Right? I mean, I'm, I'm not trying to get political, but like uh, one of the things that surprised me were how many times dates kept floating because I studied religions and cults and all these, you know, just the, I'm a person of history. So one of the things that was fascinating to me through this whole thing was how dates would be thrown out and they're like, oh, Trump's going to become president again on this date. Trump's going to become president again on this date. And that was like legitimately floating around the Internet. And the reason this is kind of playing out isn't because this is some new thing we created in the modern world. This is because for 2,600 years and beyond, this is a human struggle. What is that, what is that really saying to the followers of that theory, that idea? It was like, well, it feels out of control, but somebody's going to come and rescue there's going to be a date where it's, it's magical thinking. And just in case you think it's relegated to this small group of people or to this small group of people, you and I, we do magical thinking all the time. We think our relationship struggles, our marriage is just going to magically fix itself. We think our finances, even though every single month we overspend what we make, it's just magically going to balance itself out one day. We fall into the same trap of magical thinking. Of something out there is going to fix what's going on in here or in here. But this is not what God's pushing. He's warning them against the external locus and he pushes them towards an internal locus of control. He says, build houses, settle down, plant gardens, eat what they produce, marry and have sons and daughters, find wives for your sons and give daughters in marriage so they may have sons. Increase in number. When you read this, do you notice how much action, verbiage? He's writing this to a group of people who are completely helpless, completely hopeless, completely powerless in a foreign land where no one speaks their language, where there's 100% unemployment and there's 100% homelessness and 100% despair. And what does he say to them? He tells them to focus on the things that they still can control. He tells them to focus on the, the, the one or the some things that they still have power to do. One of the first things that we struggle with, like the warning there, like we see playing out all around us, is when we find ourselves in the unknown situations, we desperately seek for hope and help outside, falling into the trap of whatever is going to make us feel better, and we complain. And internally, one of the things in our own household that we talk about a lot, and this is our verbiage for how we kind of articulate this, is that what I love and what, what we say in our marriage, my wife Jenny, who oversees um, our kind of preschool through elementary, that what I love about being married to her is that we know that if we ever don't like it, it's our fault. But that means if we ever don't like it, we can fix it. Because we broke it, and as long as we're willing to hold the tools together and work together, we can build it, too. 
So we don't complain about our relationship. We construct a better relationship. A complaint is a, a white flag where you are, are verbally and non-verbally saying the, the locus of control is external. It's out there. Someone else controls my schedule. Someone else controls the relational dynamics. Someone else controls the financial components. External, 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 complain, complain, complain. And what God is doing is pushing these people in far more hopeless, despairing places than you and I are currently in right now, even without me knowing your situation. He was pushing them to re-engage with an internal locus of control that says, what can I do? What can I build? What do I have the power to impact and affect in my life now? So as a student walking into school with a mask on, with things looking like deja vu from 2020, yeah, you can't control the mask policy. You can't control global pandemics. But you can control the fact that even underneath the mask that you're going to smile and that you're going to make sure, you know, I'm going to try to connect with people today. I'm going to show up in our household. My daughter will tell you this, and it's annoying to her, but we say causes are thermostats, not thermometers. We are thermostats, not thermometers. We do not allow the circumstances we're in to set our temperature. We determine the temperature in whatever circumstance we find ourselves in. I know, Dad, we're thermostats, not thermometers. <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, baby girl, you're a thermostat, so you're going to go into school tomorrow, and I don't care if you... Don't feel like there's a lot of friends. You're the thermostat. They're just friends you haven't made yet. They're people you haven't engaged with yet. You're a thermostat, sweetie. And that mask does not have the power to change that. But most of us, we're thermometers. The external locus of control. And yet God in his genius is pushing a group of people to re-engage the internal locus of control. And here's the beauty. Even if you don't believe anything I've said about God, even if you completely aren't sure about the whole Jesus thing, this thing works because this is how he designed it to work. And the genius of what God is doing here is saying, focus on what you can control and on what you can change because if your entire focus is on what you can't, then you're always going to feel out of control. I stopped watching the news like a few months ago. Just because, I don't know about you, but I just saw inside my own heart, I, I didn't like who I was becoming. Because it was just so overwhelming. It was just dumpster fire after dumpster fire, and, and I don't even have a bucket. And I said, you know what, this year I'm not going to focus on what I can't control, I'm going to focus on what I can I can't control that there's a global pandemic that shut us down for a while. I can't control all the dynamics playing out in our culture. But you know what I can do? I can be a really focused pastor and I can, with who we have and what we have, build something great from it. That's why I, uh, last week I mentioned how I went and got certified during the pandemic because one of the things that this pandemic helped me realize was, man, what if I had been one of those people who hadn't made it through? one of the hundreds of thousands of people who perish, like, would I have been okay with my life? And I think a few weeks ago, or maybe a couple of months ago, I told about, I was with a, a group of guys, and we were on a trip, and one of them had a heart attack. And had we not been a mile and a half from the hospital, he would have died. And he's my age, with kids. And we were talking, we were sitting around eating dinner the night before, and he's like, man, this was perfect for me. I'm going back home, and I'm going to be a better father. 
I'm going to be a better husband. And he almost didn't make it back home. And I was like, you know what? Like, I, I want to live in the second chapter that God is giving me of my life, a better one than the first one. And not just me. God, I want to help whoever I get a privilege of pastoring. I want to help them do it too. So when I, I literally went and got certified so that I can help people discover the purpose for why they were created, a process that normally any of you would pay over $3,000 to go spend a weekend and have someone step through your life and mark and map your entire life and look at your gifts and your passions and your storylines and the headlines of your life and kind of work it through a funnel and kind of give you this clarity where you leave and you're like, oh, here's defining values in my life. Here's defining vision in my life. Here's the things and the, kind of the big goals I want my life to accomplish. Like I went and got certified so that I can do that with you as a church because I was like, well, I can do that. I can't control life, but I can help anybody who wants to discover a better one and have more of life in their life. Okay, perfect. Um, this is Des, and Des is 84 years old, and his wife is 89. And his wife cared about looking fly. She enjoyed the process of well-done hair and well-done makeup and an outfit that came together perfectly. And then she started becoming blind. And she couldn't see her face to put on her makeup. And Des started watching her burn her hand as she tried to do her hair. And after being married for decades, Des, as an 84-year-old man, showed up at a beauty salon one day and said, can I just watch you cut women's hair and do their makeup? Because my wife really values it, and she can't do it anymore. And I want to learn how, so I can do it for her. What I think you see Des do, what you're seeing Des do literally in this picture, is what God was pushing his people to in Jeremiah 29. And it's what you and I can do in this chapter of our life. Take control of what we control. He couldn't control the fact that she was going blind. He's like, she does care about hair and makeup. And you know what? I can learn how to do that. I can go and apply what I know to figuring out how to be a beautician for the beauty in my life. And I imagine no matter how hard, no matter how challenging your life is right now, there are still some things where you can step into and grab control and manage what you can change. Because that is what we do when we're in the unknown. And that ultimately, the way he wrapped up this letter and the way I want to wrap up today, this is what the Lord says. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and I will fulfill my good promise to bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you, and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. Then you will call on me and come and pray to me, and I will listen to you. This is a beautiful passage, like the most famous set of words found in the entire book of Jeremiah. Now, these words were not written to you or to me. When he says, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope in the future. He's talking to a group of people who are going to be living in exile for 70 years. You see, one of the things I teach in the 112, because I'm really passionate about people understanding how to read the Bible for themselves, 
right? I, I want to work myself out of a job in your spiritual life to some degree. Is that the Bible was not written to you, but it was written for you. Okay, and I teach people how to read the Bible, and this is one of those key pieces, that this passage was not to you or to me because none of us have had foreign invaders come into our world, strip us out of everything we know, and take us 550 miles from where we grew up. But we talk about context king and language is queen and how to read the Bible, and one of the things that when you zoom out and you click out that you find certain principles at play, and one of the principles that's clear in this passage that you see embodied in the person of Jesus is that there is a God, no matter what you've done in your past, who's still in the business of giving people a future. Of stepping in and transforming, and with grace and with hope and love, he's still in the business of giving people a future. Which is one of the things that oftentimes when we find ourselves in the unknown, that we feel like is all gone. We feel trapped in the present. With a present we can't change, in a future we don't know and that we can't control. And that God to this group 2,600 years ago and God to us 2,000 years ago through the person of Jesus and God to you and me today through me in this passage is still a God who's exchanging our past for a better future. A God who's still in the business of exchanging hopelessness and helplessness for hope and help. And that is ultimately why I want to leave you with these three things of what you can do in the unknown. Surrender to the past you can't change. You can't change this past year, this past 18 months. You can't change some of the things that you've done in this life. But there is a God who's still in the business of exchanging our past for a future. And ultimately, that's where second, we trust God with the future that you can't control. You can't control tomorrow. Quit trying. Quit focusing on the things you cannot control because it's going to leave you feeling powerless and overwhelmed. Hence why I stopped watching the news for a season. And the third thing, which is the critical thing that's present that all of us can do literally today, is focus on the present, on what you have the power to change and control. What's in your hands? Start there. Because for all of us, and even what's on the back of my computer background right now, is that you did not come this far to only come this far. You and I didn't make it through 18 months of this pandemic for it to break us. You didn't make it through the first school year to only come into this school year and finally fall apart and finally believe a lie you're not going to make any friends. You did not come this far to only come this far. I didn't come this far as a pastor of this church for this church to only come this far. I believe our best days are the days that are about to come because that's where I'm headed because I believe God's not done. And I ain't come this far to only come this far. And you didn't come only this far either. But there is still something ahead. And instead of being overwhelmed about all the things you can't control, while you're in the unknown, let's focus on what we can control and what we can change. Let's pray.
God, thank you. Thank you for the grace and the mercy and the goodness that you give to us in the way that you are for us in the midst of these circumstances and situations. I pray, Dad, for all of us right now that we would lean into and be reminded of the fact that you're a God who gives us a future. And I pray that even in this present moment, we would feel that sense of peace and hope for that future. For those who feel overwhelmed by their own past, God, thank you for the cross, for the resurrection. That's power is just as real today as it was on that hill outside of Jerusalem almost 2,000 years ago. Thank you that you're a God who is worthy of our lives, who created us for a purpose, on purpose. And may you help us in this season get greater clarity around what that purpose is. Strengthen us, encourage us, and bring to mind, even now, in our finances, in our relationships, in our workspaces, with the, the teams that we lead, with all the situations and circumstances in our power, in our control. And help us to be people who operate from that internal locus of control that you called your people to 2,600 years ago and that you're calling us to today. And it's in your name, Jesus, that I pray. Amen. I want to thank you so much for being here today.